Over the course of the last century, many wondrous and often unexpected scientific discoveries have been made about the universe. Chief among them, that our universe likely had a beginning, an idea that repulsed some scientists, as such a conclusion seemed like something straight out of the pages of Genesis. Astronomer Sir Arthur Eddington, for example, is quoted as saying that the idea of a beginning to the universe was, quote, repugnant to him, that an expanding universe seemed, quote, preposterous, and, quote, incredible, it leaves me cold, end quote. As the late astronomer Robert Jastrow famously quipped in 1992, quote, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And so what place does God have in the physics of the universe today or in the last hundred years? Jastrow believed that, quote, when a scientist writes about God, his colleagues assume that he is either over the hill or going bonkers, end quote. The late British astronomer Fred Hoyle, who coined the term Big Bang as a kind of sarcastic epithet for the origin of the universe, like Jastrow, believed that a scientist who asserted God had anything to do with the universe would risk his entire career and the well-being of his family. As Hoyle writes in his autobiography in 1994, quote, Either the universe is more complex than we think, in that variations of the laws are realized, in which case we happen to pick out the particular choices that are suited to our existence, or the universe is teleological, with the laws deliberately arranged by some agent to permit our existence. The latter view is, of course, common to most religions, but it were better for a scientist to have a millstone hung around his neck than that he should admit to such a belief. Yea, verily, if he does so, his papers will be rejected, he will receive no financial assistance in his work, the publishers of his books will receive threatening letters, and his children will be waylaid on their way home from school. As well might he seek to pass through the eye of a needle, for to hold such a view is the greatest possible scientific heresy. End quote. The eccentrically brilliant physicist Paul Dirac, who in 1933 became the youngest scientist ever to receive the Nobel Prize in Physics for his unique contributions to atomic theory and quantum mechanics, had another suggestion. Dirac, who was, quote, concerned only with the search for fundamental laws that describe the longest strands in the universe's fabric, end quote, writes his biographer Graham Faramello, was, quote, convinced that these laws must be mathematically beautiful. He once, uncharacteristically, hazarded the unverifiable conjecture that, quote, God is a mathematician of a very high order, end quote. Dirac was not a theist by any stretch of the means, but his uncharacteristic observation about God being a mathematician of the highest order does indeed bring up the question of the intelligibility of the laws and properties of our universe, discovered in just the last century. Why is the universe intelligible in this way? Why these laws? Why these numbers? From where do they originate, if not in the mind of God? Albert Einstein, also not one who believed in the traditional Judeo-Christian concept of God, nevertheless used the term God when discoursing about the universe. Quote, God does not play dice, end quote, he famously said, 
to mean that he could not fathom a chaotically, randomly arranged universe, that there had to be some underlying unifying theory or explanation for why our universe is the way it is. These intriguing insights into the minds of brilliant physicists who made revolutionary discoveries about the universe do strongly suggest that it is nearly impossible to understand the inner workings of the cosmos without some reference to God, reminiscent of the ancient rhetorical questions that God puts to his beleaguered servant Job. Quote, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season? and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? And as David writes in Psalm 19, the heavens pour forth speech and reveal knowledge day unto day and night unto night they unceasingly declare the glory of God. On this episode of Good Heavens, I talk with astrophysicist and cosmologist Dr. Luke Barnes, who shares some of his experiences and historical insights about the landscape of the disciplines of astronomy and cosmology in the last century. Dr. Luke Barnes is a John Templeton Foundation Fellow at Western Sydney University. He earned a scholarship to complete a PhD in astronomy at the University of Cambridge. He has published papers in the field of galaxy formation and on the fine-tuning of the universe for life. He recently authored a Cambridge University book with Geraint Lewis entitled A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos. We had a delightful conversation about just how hair-raising the idea of our universe having a beginning really was to many scientists. The more that was discovered, the more questions seemed to be raised than answered. What is mathematics? Where do these numbers come from? Why does beauty, what does beauty have to do with mathematics? Why physics at all? How is it we can understand the cosmos in the first place? Why, finally, is there something rather than nothing? So come and eavesdrop on a fascinating and delightful chat with Dr. Barnes and be encouraged. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob delights to show us his handiwork. So come and see. As the psalmist declares, quote, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Well, greetings, Dr. Barnes, Dr. Luke Barnes. I have Dr. Luke Barnes with me. Uh, well, I would say this evening, because it is evening in Texas, but you, I'm talking to you in the future. <laughs> we yes, are 16, it's tomorrow here. <laughs> it's tomorrow. So <laughs> yeah. how's the future looking, Dr. Barnes? Fr Friday's very nice. I think you'll <laughs> like it when it comes around. <laughs> that would be really cool. So uh, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about how you got into cosmology and uh, your background and, uh, and what you're doing now. Yeah, so I'm a, an astrophysicist and cosmologist. So um, I, I did, I grew up in Australia and did my undergraduate uh, degrees uh, here, um, and then I did a PhD in astronomy at the University of Cambridge, um, and then I worked in Zurich in Switzerland for two years in sort of astrophysics and astronomy, uh, and uh, then after six years at uh, the University of Sydney as a postdoctoral researcher, I'm now a postdoctoral researcher at Western Sydney University. And my interests are, you know, just anything, anything big in the universe. 
including the universe itself. So I'm particularly <laughs> interested in, in, in cosmology and astrophysics and any, anywhere those two start overlapping, anywhere where you need to know what the universe is doing to understand galaxies and you need to know what galaxies are doing to understand the universe That's and all fantastic. those wonderful areas. Now, has this, was this a childhood interest of yours? Well, sort of, um, although I was a bit more of a dinosaur nerd as a kid, to be honest. <laughs> um, it was only sort of high school, uh, you know, I was always good at maths. That, that can't be a surprise to anyone. Um, and then <laughs> physics in year in the sort of final two years of high school. That, okay. that all of this mathematics stuff you could actually apply to the real world is what started me down that, that particular uh, path. Yeah, yeah. And then it just became something you were fascinated with. Now, you have a combined area of interest, and I'm wondering if you could unpack just for our listeners the differences between, well, there's three things in mind that you see a lot. You see what you said. You see a, an astrophysicist, um, mm-hmm. cosmologist, and uh, what we would call an observational astronomer. Can you sort of break down or sort of describe the differences between those three? So the terms are a little bit loose. Like no one's really sat down and t- properly okay. uh, laid them out. But uh, certainly within, within the biggest field of you know, astronomy and astrophysics, you've got, um, well, there's, 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 first of all, there's the instrumentalists, the people who actually make the instruments. And that's a, you know, that's a, a discipline of its own within astronomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the observers, generally the observers, who are the ones who go out and actually use the instrument, instruments, design you know, where they're going to point them. And right. then take the data and analyze the data. Okay. And then you've got uh, the theorists who are really sort of astrophysicists where you want to try and understand the data using physics. So that involves solving equations and all that sort of thing. Um, so you'll try and sort of say, you know, build a model of how stars work and how, you know, I, you know what, what, what's happening at the center of the star. And you, you go all the way from your physics of that to what we would expect to see. And then you see if you got that right. Mm. So, and then... Further on from that, there's cosmology, which is sort of sort of overlaps with astronomy. Uh, it's specifically looking at the properties of the universe as a whole, and as a rough as a rough guide, anything where you've got to worry about the expansion of the universe, you're basically doing cosmology. Um, okay. But there's a big overlap between that and you know some people might think it's a sub branch of uh, astronomy. I suppose. Um, when you're doing very, very early universe cosmology, you're doing some very speculative sort of physics-y stuff. So that's sort of on the edges of astrophysics, I suppose. It's really its own discipline. So that's, that's sort of how things break down. So you have a lot of uh, kind of off the cuff here thinking, I, I, you know, my, my knowledge of cosmology and astronomy is all popular level stuff you find in Barnes and Noble. So um, I ask in part for myself, but in part also for our audience, but it seems like, Nowadays, when you go to a bookstore and you browse the science section, you find astronomy and cosmology and astrophysics kind of all together. It's all under the category of science. But in reality, there's, there's a lot of difference between, say, a theoretical cosmologist and, a, and maybe somebody who does observational astronomy. Because is it true that a lot of theoretical cosmology today is actually moving away from observational data and just building theoretical models and how much observation do theoretical cosmologists do nowadays? Is that just very depending on what you're studying or? Well, so there's always a bit of a tension. So there's, there's sort of periods that science, any science goes through. So a good example of this is sort of particle physics. Um, 
So there was a time in sort of the 50s, 60s, and 70s where the 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 observers, although they would say experimentalists, but mm-hmm. you know the people who were actually go and get the data, mm-hmm. they were running ahead of the theorists. They had a whole swathe of stuff. You know, they'd found a whole bunch of particles. You know, you okay. smash this that and a new particle comes out that no one's ever seen before so that's when the 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 observers the experimentalists are ahead they've got a whole bunch of stuff that no one understands and the theorists are trying to catch up okay Uh, and then sort of through the 70s the theorists basically catch up and you have the standard model of particle physics as we know it Mm -hmm. and so for since the sort of 80s i guess 90s i don't know depends you know ask a historian exactly when you want to do this but it seems like the, the situation today is the theorists are ahead We've 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 explained most of the data that we have, and uh, but there's always sort of more than one candidate for how you could explain that, mm. and so the sort of theorists have got more models than we know how to rule out. Okay. Um, so there's this. I mean, the ideal situation is sort of one, you know, one to one. We have the data and we have this right, one right, model right. That, that matches it. And sometimes we've got too much data and no models can handle it. And sometimes <laughs> we have. Not enough data and too many models. Yeah. And cosmology at the moment is, well, the problem with cosmology is there's always limit, a limited amount of data. I mean, mm. what, what, a, what a particle physicist can do is just keep smashing stuff together. Right. Lots of data. I mean, even then they, they're still in trouble. But cosmology, we've always been sort of fighting for scraps of information. Okay. Um, so we're sort of, although there are some interesting hints sort of in the last couple of years that things might not be as nice as we thought, but certainly... Um, in the last, say, two decades, there's there's been consensus on a model that kind of explains everything. There's still some mysteries in that model, like you know, dark matter and dark energy. And sure. Stuff. But but yeah, we're, we're at a stage where the theorists are ahead. You can you can do some theorizing and you can explain basically all the data, but you know, two people won't necessarily agree on, right. on what the right way to get ahead right. is. Right. Well, I think a, a good story comes to mind. I, I think I read this in uh, Marcia. Bartuzak, Bartuziak, I think she's a science writer. I want to say she's at MIT, but she writes. She's got. She's a wonderful writer. Uh, she, I think it was the book called "The Day We Found the Universe" or "The Day We Discovered the Universe." I think it was. I don't know, but it's just a memorable quote where Einstein and his wife. I think it was in the 30s. They're touring the United States and they come to Mount Wilson in California, and they're being shown the Hooker hundred-inch telescope on which. Hubble made his monumental discovery that the universe was expanding. And uh, the gentleman giving the tour says to Miss Einstein, this is the telescope by which we have discovered the structure of the universe. And it is purported that Mrs. Einstein said, oh, my husband does sat on the back of an old envelope. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Yeah, very nice. But I think that's, that's a good... That's a nice line between what you're talking about there, right? That uh, you have <clears throat> the Hubble looking at galaxies flying away, and then you have Einstein literally writing equations down and kind of factoring and figuring. Is that a good kind of a good barometer of how things are? Just the back and forth there. Yeah. So, um, if when when a theorist like you know uh, Einstein, if, if they can get ahead of the observers and predict something before it turns up, that's obviously like the ideal that's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. I mean, so Einstein predicting you know the way that light would bend as it go past, goes past the sun. You know, that's that's sort of the stuff of legend. Um, so 
you know, the theorists, theorists being ahead and, and proposing ideas that we can't quite test yet isn't such a bad thing unless they get way too far ahead that, you know, yeah. most of this work is going to be wasted. Mm. Uh, and it's hard, I mean, it's hard to know what it is. I mean, so cosmology had a pretty, you know, bad kind of reputation, even into the, you know, you know, 50 years after Einstein, it's still, so there's a, there's a quote from Ernest Rutherford, who was a famous physicist, but yes. an experimentalist, mm-hmm. yes, very hard headed. Um, <laughs> and he said, you know, don't, don't let me catch anyone talking about the universe in my department. And it's sort of, there's, yeah, there's this, all this speculation. Um, mm. And, you know, he doesn't, you know, he, he wasn't up for any of that until you've got some, um, some data don't don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't to talk me. to me <laughs> yeah well i was i was watching a video on youtube not not the greatest place in the world to go for cosmology but there's some interesting stuff out there but i, I ran across a, an educational video with j richard gott you know who he is yes yeah Yeah. he works i don't know what his if he's a cosmologist i think he's a cosmologist astrophysicist yeah, cos, cos, cosmologist is, okay yeah, yeah well he jokingly said and i'm i'm quoting him i'm not making fun of him he said you know he has he showed this model of something that looks like a, a triple headed shofar or something, a candelabra of some kind. And he said, jokingly about it, he said, my model looks like something out of a Dr. Seuss novel. Um, <laughs> but it was a visually, it was a visual drawing of what he was trying to explain in terms of infinite or eternal cyclical. I don't know the name of the, the, the model he's proposing, but um, he, he brought up an interesting point though, something maybe you can address uh, the role of, you know, you think of science and you think of logic and reason and math and, you know, all the hard stuff and the empirical evidence and telescopes and all this satellite stuff and all this technical stuff. But uh, in the field of cosmology, you need a great deal of uh, uh, imagination. And that, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but you really need to think creatively about what things, how things might be in order to make predictions. Would you, would you, how, how do you see the role of imagination in, in, in what you do? They, they, there is that first moment of of every scientific theory starts with someone's idea and a and a, and a qualitative idea and one that just sort of comes out of the blue. Mm. Um, mm. So there's actually there's a there's a lovely quote from Paul Dirac who was one of the greatest physicists. Yes, of the 20th I century. love Dirac. Dirac's great. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a quote something along the lines of you know I, I always felt it was a bit strange that I got credit for some of my ideas because they seem to came come to me out of nowhere. It's like, you know, just an idea yeah. pops into his head and, yeah. and it, it seemed odd that he got credit for it. But, mm. you know, there, there's the hard work to do of, I've had this idea about how the universe might be. I need to make it precise enough that I can make predictions with it. And that's where the mathematics is involved. Yes. Um, but yeah, there, there is that first moment. I mean, Einstein, I mean, one of the reasons Einstein is so famous is because he has that idea of, you know, what if, what if, what if gravity just is a curvature of space and time? Mm. I mean, you could have that thought, but then you've got then a you lot of work mathematics to do. Yeah. yeah. And you've got to get it to the point where you go, you start with that thought and you've got a lot of steps to go before you can say, okay, therefore, when the light comes past the sun, it will be bent by this precise amount. Yes. Um, and Einstein was able to get from sort of start to finish of that idea. Yeah, Eddington, but, was, it, was it 1919 when it was proven? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's the one. Uh, Eddington on, the, on an island off the coast of Africa, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's correct. Yeah, that, 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 but, it, but it was remarkable that, that this... Um, guy from a patent office made a prediction on the back of an old envelope 
And um, I don't know if that's how he did it, but, but, but he made this prediction that, that space time was a kind of invisible magic carpet fabric thing. And that if you looked at the sun and saw this star, it would bend the light this much was pretty remarkable. I mean, it, it, well, well, so let me fill in the details. So he's working in a patent office uh, before he has his sort of miracle year in 1905, mm-hmm. but that's, he comes up with um, three things to, you know, we, we can go into the other ones, but one of them is the special theory of relativity, which is not really about gravity, but it does turn out to be about space and time. Mm-hmm. It's about time dilation and length contraction and all those wonderful things. You can't go faster than the speed of light equals MC squared. That's all that wonderful stuff. Right. Um, three years later, Minkowski, who was a mathematician, shows that Einstein's theory can be better written out as sort of this, this space and time together as a four-dimensional thing called space-time. Mm. Uh, and then Einstein tries to put all of this together into a theory of gravity, but he's, he's got some serious mathematics ahead of him. So he gets a lot of help out from um, Marcel Grossman, and there's a, there's a bunch of mathematicians who he has to go and talk to about all this sort of stuff. Does so I'm he, sure um, there were, there were he, lots of uh, envelopes involved. Does he, does, he, does he work independently of George Lemaitre, or did they work together? No, independently of Lemaitre. Lemaitre has come slightly later. So once he's got the theory of relativity in about 1915, he publishes the theory. And as far as he's concerned, like, you know, good luck finding any solutions to this equation. <laughs> uh, he had some approximate solutions, which were enough to tell him how much light bent past the sun and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but then, um, you, know, uh, you know, within about a year, uh, Schwarzschild shows that there's this, he produces what's the you know the solution for a black hole actually mm-hmm. for for any static symmetrical spherically symmetrical you know gravitational field um and that's an exact solution and so everyone thinks oh great we're in business now we you know there might actually be solutions to this and so mm-hmm. then in the in the 20s trying to describe the universe as a whole you've got friedman Alexander Friedman and in the early twenties, but his work isn't much noticed. I think Einstein famously says something like your mathematics is fine, but your physics is abominable. (laughs) Um, And then the same solution is found by Lemaitre in, he publishes his paper in 1927. Um, And, and it's in this strange mix. So by 1929 Hubble will show that the universe is actually expanding Mm. and Lemaitre almost could have shown that, but but didn't quite. Stop There's short. a bit of interesting physics in there. Well, um, there was a footnote in his original paper, which basically almost did what Hubble did. Uh, hmm. But when it was when it was translated into English, that footnote disappeared. And wow. until quite recently, within the last ten years, no one know, knew why it was disappeared. Until someone going through Lemaitre's so, so who did the translation was the question. It was, uh, it, it was from French. So Lemaitre was Belgian from French into English. It's that's the mm-hmm. translation. Who did the translation? And finally it worked out Lemaitre did the translation. <laughs> so <laughs> there was no great scandal there. It was, he, he sort of did it to himself. It's just probably it fair though. Yeah. He, he didn't quite do what Hubble did. He assumed that there was a relationship between redshift and distance where Hubble actually showed that there was a relationship. Okay. All right. But, so, so all of this is a really interesting, you know, model of ideas coming thick and fast. That's amazing. I mean, it's just in 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 a matter of not even a hundred years, our knowledge of the universe increased exponentially, because prior to 1929, as I understand it, uh, and Hubble's discovery, you had the long-standing dis- discussion about uh, 
the, the universe being, well, it wasn't a discussion really. It was just an assumption of a static universe. And, uh, you know, it didn't, it just, it was always the case. Go back and talk a little bit about before the discovery of the expansion of the universe by Hubble, this, this, uh, this always comes up Einstein's greatest blunder. Mm. Um, what, what exactly is that? And when, which, which equation does he make this blunder and, and what is that? How did that lead to future discoveries that we now know? What, uh, how did that all unpack? So the, the blunder is, so, so um, it, it's associated with Einstein put into his equation a term called the cosmological constant, um, and that's called the blunder. But actually the, the, the blunder is, it's, it's probably, it's his own words, and it's reported by one person, so we're not entirely sure. Uh, you know, blunder, he's being a bit harsh on himself. Okay. So, here's, here's, so when Einstein's talking to Friedman in the ne- early 1920s, and he's looking at his equations, the reason why he says the mathematics is fine but the physics is abominable is precisely because Friedman's universe was not static. It moved. It didn't, it, it moved, it, it expanded. Um, and so Einstein, and, and it's, it's very difficult to make a universe in Einstein's theory of general relativity, which doesn't have this property overall as a whole. It's very difficult to make a static universe. Mm-hmm. And so Einstein, if he had sort of, I think what he was kicking himself about when he talks about the blunder is if he just sort of believed his equations and trusted his equations, he could have predicted the expansion of, of the universe, the redshift of the galaxies, you know, five years before it was observed, and then that would have been huge. Mm. As it happens, it all sort of came in one rush together with theory and, and observation working together. Mm. So what Einstein did is, if you start with, with um, what Friedman was doing and you think, well, no, the universe isn't expanding, that's definitely not happening. Um, how can I make a static universe? One thing that you can do is... When, when Einstein goes from his first principles and then he has to do all that maths we were talking about, mm-hmm. you're, 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 you start from your principles and you're sort of heading on that road to, towards the final thing. There are always some sort of forks in that road you could take, which are sort of complications. And so at each point, you've got a decision to make and you just try and take the easiest way. Mm. So, for example, Einstein could have made his space time. There's a, there's, a, there's a property called torsion, which is you make it twisty. Okay. And he went, okay, I could do that, but that's just complica- <laughs> complication. Let me leave. <laughs> let me just leave that aside. I'll take the simple thing and I'll, I'll just keep chugging down the road. At some point he has the option of introducing the cosmological constant and it's there legitimately in, so it's not a fudge factor in, in a sort of, you know, it's completely arbitrary. He has a choice to introduce it on that road and he doesn't initially in his 1915 work because he doesn't need it. Mm-hmm. And so he just takes the simplest option and off, off we go to general relativity. So he thinks now, okay, well, whoops, you know, where I ended up general relativity is telling me that the universe is not static, but, but we all know in inverted colonies that it is static. So he sort of, he had, he sort of backs up the road and takes that fork towards the cosmological constant, adds that into the equation. And then if you, if you tune that number just right, you can make a static universe. So in one sense, what he's doing is kind of like, and I don't mean it's kind of a rough equivalency here, but he was kind of trying to save the static universe. Uh, like, yeah, uh, that's, that's exactly what he was doing. Like, uh, like the medievals were trying to save epicycles um, and just kind of, well, everybody knows the earth doesn't move. So we have to, or everybody knows that the planets move in, in circles. Uh, so we have to kind of save the theory or save the idea because everybody knows this. So he was trying to keep the universe in place, 
with the the uh, the fudge factor or the, the the blunder. It was trying to like a parking brake on the universe. It does not move. It can't move. And so that's what he was doing, pretty much keeping the universe stable. <laughs> Yeah, that's basically it. Although the funny thing is it's static, but it's not actually stable. So uh, um, Eddington proved a couple of years later, it's it's static, but it's, it's static like a pencil uh, balanced on its end. The slightest okay. nudge will make it expand or contract. So you, you sneeze and so it in fact, apart. Exactly. So okay. um, in fact, he, he hadn't saved it after all. And by this time, he'd thrown the cosmological constant away anyway. Because okay. this was after 1929, but um, you know, it, it is interesting if you reround history and you start in, you know, the say say 1915 and you go again. Around that time, there's a, an astronomer called Vesto Slipher, yeah, uh, who has who has. So when when um, when Hubble puts his data together, it's distances and redshift. So it's how far away is this galaxy and how much is the light from that galaxy stretched to longer wavelengths? Yes. That, that, the data about the stretching comes from Vesto Slipher. So that's, that wasn't, so that was sort of given to Hubble. Okay. Um, so he's sort of part of the hero here. But um, if you started with, if Slipher, if you take all of these hints, it would be very easy to sort of just shuffle history again and things come out. You know, Slipher could have seen that the universe is expanding because he ha- he noticed the, the, all these galaxies, all their light is redshifted. Mm. Um, Einstein, if he just sort of said, you know, hang on a minute, I, how do I? Why do I think the universe is static? You know, it's just because I don't see anything. Well, if it's all expanding away from me, I wouldn't see things like buzzing around in the night sky. Mm. It would seem like it is. If he'd got the redshift hint from Slipher, um, if people had paid more attention to. Um, uh, Friedman, if Einstein had realized that this cosmological constant trick actually doesn't work, it doesn't make a static universe, if that argument had come, if he'd realized that straight away, there's a thousand different sort of permutations how, how the, the, the first decade of, of, of cosmology turns out. Mm, mm. So it was a huge, huge paradigm shift in our understanding of the universe in 1929, uh, where you have Lemaitre, where you have Einstein, you have Slipher, um, you have all of these different facets coming in together to sort of unequivocally show that uh, the universe is in a state of expansion. Is that correct? This is, there's no question about the expansion rate, right? Well, uh, at that point in time, there's, a, there's still, like, like I said, you know, cosmology is the people have always been a bit suspicious. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, there's a, um, uh, there's a book I love by a, a famous American astronomer, James Jeans. Um, and he, um, so he's got a book called stars in their courses. He's very famous. He's very well known. Uh, but even he, I think this is 19, like 35. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, it's, um, oh, sorry. I've got it mixed up with someone else. He's English. He's not American. Okay. Um, but he, he's writing in 1935 saying, you know, you know, Hubble seems to have shown that these, these, there's these red shifts, but uh, you know, we, we've got to just wait and see whether all this turns out to be <laughs> real or not. He's still like backing away from, let's not just put, let's all not jump to this conclusion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it'll, it'll be, you know, in the 1940s, there'll be alternatives to the big bang theory put forward, like the steady state model from Fred Hoyle. And, you know, it'll be a lot, it'll be quite a while before things sort of settle down. So the, the, I think it's interesting that what started to happen, I know Lemaitre, when 
when they proposed this or when it started to dawn on everybody that the universe was in a state of expansion that seemed like the the metaphysical implications of this was to say the universe had a beginning. So this idea of the universe having a beginning in cosmology, in the theory, in the field of astrophysics was unsettlingly new just a hundred years ago. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, Lemaitre, George Lemaitre uh, is a priest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so as well as a, as a cosmologist Um, and yeah, it's definitely true that one of the reasons why people were unsettled by the uh, the the sort of Lemaitre's picture, Friedman's picture, the the not a steady state picture, but sort of a standard Big Bang kind of picture, mm-hmm. um, is that it 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 looked for all the world like the universe had some sort of beginning, and there's there's all sorts of interesting quotes. It, the funny thing is, it's not that any religious people jump on that bandwagon and immediately start saying, "Ha, ah, we've proved creation." And in no, particular. Lemaitre was very, um, you know, he actually writes to the Pope himself to say, all right, you know, just, <laughs> you know, he put it better than this, but let's, let's not just put all our eggs in this basket. You know, this is just yes. a model for the moment. Um, right. Don't, don't say that this is, you know, we found proof of creation or anything like that. Right. I remember that. Um, caution- I mean, that, that cautionary note is often repeated by skeptics. I know. Yeah, I think it's useful to have in have in mind, but yes, um, it it's it's yeah. not it's not so much that the, the religious people go haha. It's that um, a whole bunch of cosmologists who are atheists say, "Oh no, we can't possibly have this." <laughs> you know, Fred Hoyle says, "You know this, you know this is clearly just you know supernatural creation sneaking in the back door." Yes, and there's 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 famous quote there's there's quotes from scientists saying, you know, that the fact that the universe is eternal and has always existed is a is a precondition of all of science it's like it's a it's a basic assumption of all of science we can't possibly we can't change throw that, that away yeah. um so yeah again that's a really kind of that that's an interesting thing it, it sort of unsettles a whole lot of people and that's just, a, just for what it is that's the fascinating thing here is science um and it, it takes a while for this this actually to catch on there's some hesitation i know eddington had said at one point he was abhorred or he loathed or something. He couldn't stand the idea of a universe with a beginning. It was just abhorrent to him or something like this. But this was generally the, the gut reaction. Which is funny because... Go ahead. Yeah, well, Eddington was a Quaker, so that's kind of interesting, actually. Um, <laughs> I'd have loved him to sort of expand on that more, but yeah. So go yeah. On. Well, I, I think, I, I wish I had the quote somewhere, but the it was, I say, preposterous or unsettling, or it was something unnerving to him, the idea of, uh, of the universe having a beginning. It, it just, maybe it was just the idea that, just as you said earlier, that the model of a static steady state the, the, or the, 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 the eternal uh, always existing universe, just going from that to, to a universe with a beginning just seemed to blow people's minds. Um, it was a very unsettling paradigm shift within the science. Yeah, I, I remember the quote. I, I wish I had it to hand as well. Uh, yeah, Eddington doesn't jump on that bandwagon either. So, like, yeah, like I said, it, it's um, it's not that uh, that that religious people jump on this. It's mm. that atheists sort of are repelled by it. And so, an awful lot of the alternative models to the Big Bang theory come out of um, you know, 
fairly straightforwardly this this kind of desire that we can't have that kind of you know yes. sort of beginning just 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 hanging around the universe yeah it it just seems like the the it's it's hard to and that's kind of what I, what I wanted to touch on the 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 shocking reality of of what science had uncovered just it's hard to it's hard to conceive but i think what you're seeing now especially in the you tell me because you're in the field um i have a a quote here from hawking from his grand design uh where he says that uh quote um a great many universes were created out of nothing their creation does not require the intervention of some supernatural being or God. Rather, these multiple universes arise naturally from physical law, end quote. And that's on page eight and nine of the grand design. But that, Luke, seems to be uh, very much uh, the spirit of a lot of contemporary cosmological models that try to do an end around uh, a universe with a beginning. Do you find that to be true or is that hyperbole and apologetics or what is the state of the discipline? Are we are we still trying to do end arounds with a universe with a beginning, coming up with alternative explanations without God? What do you see there? Well, um, I, I there's a couple of things to say here. First of all, there's there's not any sort of proof that there's a beginning, and it's almost. I mean, science in general doesn't really prove anything. You just get evidence one way right, or another, right? Right, and you keep moving on. And in particular, there's the earliest parts of the universe are obviously going to stretch or almost certainly going to stretch our understanding of physical law. So there, there is a big sort of question mark at the beginning there. We, 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 we can extrapolate all the way to the beginning if we just stay with Einstein's general theory of relativity. Uh, and then there's a beginning there and it's a singular beginning. But we, we, we think that, and for fairly good reasons, there's there's more to that story that needs to be added. So quantum mechanics, our understanding about how small things work, is has probably got something to say about what really goes on there. General relativity is probably some sort of approximate theory that which works really well on big scales, but doesn't work right at the beginning. Mm. Um, I, I one of the interesting things I've noticed is that there's all these clues back and forward. You can go through the history of you know since the beginning you know, of, of cosmology. So, you know, uh, it's, you know, in the, th- in the 20s, we find out the universe is expanding as to the most simple explanations that universe has a beginning. And then people say, or oh, maybe there's a bouncing universe. Maybe it goes up and down, you know, it, the, the big bang was actually a big bounce. And then uh, in the, in the 30s, it proved that, no, that's not going to work. Richard Tolman shows the bounces won't all be the same. Mm. And so they have to get bigger. And then there's the thought, oh, maybe, you know, the singularity is there because we assume a perfectly smooth, perfectly like basically assuming that something is a perfect sphere where there's actually, it's going to have some lumps and bumps and maybe that will get rid of the singularity. And then what Hawking and and Penrose are famous for is their theorems in the sixties and seventies, which show that no, that's not going to help. You can't avoid a singularity just by making a lumpy universe actually under very general conditions, they turn up in general relativity. And so you think, okay, the, there are they're there under fairly general conditions, but not all conditions. Maybe if, if there's some sort of matter out there that has repulsive gravity, maybe that will help avoid a beginning. And then uh, it seemed like we needed that sort of thing. If we, if there was repulsive gravity in the very early universe, that might explain some things about our universe via a theory called cosmic inflation. Um, anyway, all this sort of back and forth clues and counter clues. There's like stronger versions of of 
of Penrose and Hawking's theorems. There's speculations about what a an actual quantum theory of gravity might look like. In all of these clues, um, it seems to me, this is just my observations, but um, uh, no one tried to put a beginning into the universe. They sort of found them already lurking there in models that they had. Mm. Um, uh, however, you know, lots of people have tried to make a universe that doesn't have a beginning, but they have to really try. <laughs> mm. You've got to actually go looking for one of those. They, they didn't happen across them. And yeah. sometimes they thought they had one without a beginning, and then it turned out there was a beginning there after all. Mm. Um, but the state of play is, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of clues that point towards beginning. On, you know, on average, there's probably, in, in, you know, to my estimation, more in that direction than not. But there's a big question mark because, you know, we don't know what to do with quantum mechanics that early in the universe. Yeah, I have a uh, kind of a quote from one of my favorite quotes from Hamlet, Shakespeare. And it reminds me of, of what I've read. And, and of course, again, I'm not I'm not versed in it as you are in the, the field of astrophysics and cosmology. But, uh, you know, Hamlet is seeing his father's ghost and uh, he kind of demands that the ghost explained to him what's going on. He says, angels and ministers of grace defend us. Be thou a spirit of health or goblin damned. Bring with thee errors from heaven or blast from hell. Be thy intents wicked or charitable. Thou comest in such a questionable shape that I will speak to thee. And that kind of reminds me of, of the field of quantum mechanics in some sense. Or, <laughs> questionable or even, shapes. Yeah, questionable shapes of, of, of the parameters of fine tuning. And although you know, despite what our cosmogonies, our origin theories might be, it seems like the field of astrophysics and cosmology is scratching their heads, staring at Hamlet's ghost going, where did all these figures come from? Uh, it, it's not like the, 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 the mathematics is, is questionable. It's the metaphysical implications of where did we get all these numbers and data, correct? Is it fine tuning is what you've spoken a lot on. Um, and that is that a, that's a befuddling mystery in the field is it not like where did all this come from yeah well fine tuning is 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 more like the question why is it this kind of stuff rather than some other kind of stuff uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, where where it comes from in the you know i i think uh, I, I certainly hope Lawrence Krauss wrote a book that was supposed to explain where why there is something rather than nothing, and I think it it is when he was occasionally sort of candid and honest about it, he even, he recognized that he was just sort of using that to get people to read his book, that it actually it didn't answer that question at all. Yeah. He just wanted to talk about some cosmology. Well, and there was equivocation there with nothing. It's like, what did he mean by that? Yeah. I, I think it was just him. That was just branding. I mean, he didn't, I don't think he really thinks he answers the question. Mm. Um, you know, uh, there was a quote from him. He, he, he got criticized by sort of fellow new atheists, uh, by Jerry Coyne, who's a, bio yeah. who's a biologist. Right. Um, but, but Krauss turned up in the comments and said, Oh, look, I wasn't trying to answer the classical question of why there's something rather than nothing. I was like, well, then why did you give that as the title of your book? Um, but uh, so I think, um, there's a really interesting conversation between a couple of philosophers and some cosmologists, which I saw a couple of years ago that one of the philosophers was David Albert, who I have a very high regard for. And uh, one of the cosmologists was uh, Neil Turok, who's quite well known within uh, cosmology. Okay. And um, uh, Albert had, had been had, was saying that he'd been reading. He's not a, not any sort of believer, not a theist, but he'd been reading um, uh, Augustine, so you know, famous mm -hmm. 
Christian mm-hmm. theologian mm-hmm. 1600 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was sort of fascinating that there was an awful lot of questions there that Augustine raises that uh, are just, you could just translate, transpose straight into the modern day. And they're still quite, you know, um, yeah, they're, they're still quite pressing. They're still right on the money. And um, Turok tried to say, look, the difference between us and Augustine is that we have a lot more data about the universe. And I think the right, he's, he's of course correct. We know an awful lot more about the universe now, but there is still this fundamental core of questions like, you know, where did all this stuff come from? Mm. Which the sort of naive, um, you know, scientist who hasn't done enough physics, who hasn't done enough philosophy thinks that, you know, if I just try and science a bit harder, I'll get the answer to this out of my science. And yeah. there's, a, there's a, you know, more of a, uh, possibly more of an acknowledgement these days that no, that's not the sort of answer, this question that science could possibly answer at all either you you do what sean carroll advocates in his book the big picture which is basically you say look at some point um explanations have to stop and uh existence is a pretty mysterious thing so if we just have to posit that posit that some things exist and just leave it there then that might be just the best that we can do it's almost like a a, a theological move there where you just brute fact something um in a sense. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely a metaphysical move. It's not yeah. a you know my physics didn't make me do this, but right. It's 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 infinitely better than the oh if I just do a bit more science, but right. you know, and then we can have a proper conversation about which is better that that move or some mm. other move. Well, you do a good. I've heard you speak. Uh, you do a good example of uh, what you call Alberta's blackboard, where you have that uh, yeah. final equation. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk a little bit about that? I think it speaks right to what you're saying. Yeah, so what, one of the other things that, you know, so, so suppose Sean's right. Well, suppose, you know, we we do science and then one day, you know, we sort of solve the, the universe the way you might solve a crossword puzzle and we, mm. we've actually filled everything in. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we don't know all the details, but we know all the fundamental rules. So yes. I guess I guess the analogy there might be, you know, some chess pieces trying to work out what the rules of chess are. They might not have totally worked out all the strategies of chess, and that's a great big textbook strategies of chess, but they could have at least worked out what the rules of chess are, you know, what all the pieces can do mm-hmm. and what the pieces are. And I, and I, so I'd sort of imagine that in, in the future, some, some physicist, you know, Alberta, um, you know, Einstein's great, great, great granddaughter or something, mm-hmm. um, just walks up to a chalkboard and writes down an equation. And then that's, that's basically it. That's the rules of our universe. Mm. Um, and at that point, as as Albert was sort of seeing, and as you know, uh, as as if if you have someone who knows a bit of metaphysics can see, at that point, science has nothing deeper to say. It has more to say about you know strategy, how all these play play out. There's nothing by construction. There's nothing deeper to say about the universe. Hmm. And so, uh, you've got Sean Carroll saying, "All right, that's it. We just." we're done. We just start from there and try to explain stuff about the universe or physics. Be- um, physicists become florists or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or you know, we all <laughs> high five and go home. Fist um, bump, it's over guys. <laughs> but ob- obviously on the, on the board, there's nothing that says why anything at all exists because it's just an equation. That's mm-hmm. equations. Don't explain anything like that. Is that, is this, are we really get what you're explaining there? Is that Goodell's theorem that, that, that mathematics can explain a lot. It just can't explain itself. Oh, that's a, that's a, no, that's a separate, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm totally at peace with Gödel's theorem. Um, <laughs> not either. I just, it's a very, confu- okay. So here's, here's my, for the, for the, for the, for the reader who, for the listener, sorry. Um, 
um, uh, sort of by by wide agreement, the greatest mathematician of the 20th century was David Hilbert, a German. Yeah. And one of the things that makes him the greatest was at the turn of the century, 1901, he writes down 20 something, 21, 25 problems, which he says are going to be, these are the most pressing ones. Um, and we should really work on these. And he's, he's basically bang on, you know, it's sort of almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, but basically he does really map out what 20th century mathematics is going to do. Wow. And one of them is, um, can we axiomatize mathematics? Can we write down, so the, the, the way you work as a mathematician is you have your starting point, your axioms, the mm-hmm. things that you just start with, and then you prove stuff from there. So right. the axioms of geometry, axioms of arithmetic. Sure. And so what he wanted to do was let's write down the axioms of mathematics and then we're done at least at that level and then we can just move stuff on from there. So famously Bertrand Russell, Alfred North Whitehead thought that they had that, their project was starting. They they have these two volume books where 800 pages in, they prove that one plus one equals two uh, and, and they're off down on this. Let's just prove everything from scratch and then it'll all totally be certain. And in particular, what you want to be able to prove is here's my axioms and you write down a set of axioms. You want to prove two things. A, that they are consistent mm. uh, because they better not end up contradicting each other because right. that, that would be a massive disaster. <laughs> and they, they, they should be complete in, which, in, in the sense that any problem that I can pose using, these, using what's there in the axioms, I can decide whether what the answer to that problem is or any theorem I can prove whether it's true or false, just using a finite number, the, the axioms and a finite number of proof steps. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so what Gödel then comes along. So this, this is 1901 and everyone thinks, you know, we'll just finish maths and it'll be right. We'll get it. We've, we've got something. We've got it. We've got it. We'll, we'll got prove it. it's, it's, it's complete and we'll prove it's consistent. And then Gödel comes along in 1931, I think yeah. a mathematician famously eccentric. There are some fascinating stories about him as a person. Yeah. Kurt Gödel, Austrian, um, and proves two things called the incompleteness theorems. And one of them is um, once you build up to a certain level of the axioms where you've got um, arithmetic and sort of full-blown mathematicians arithmetic, um, two things happen to your system. One is if it's consistent, you can't prove it's consistent. Mm. And number two is there will always be statements which are undecidable, which the axioms, you can start with the axioms, but you'll never be able to prove one way or another, whether that particular statement is true or false. It sounds like, uh, the, it's, it sounds like, I mean, a very colloquially, uh, and it's, it's an analogy, so it's, it's, a, it's a poor one, but it, it sounds like what he discovered really is that the fabric of reality is made up of this thing we call faith. You have to kind of assume oh. an axiom by faith. <laughs> There's a, there is a quote along the line that um, um, if real, if religion involves accepting things on faith, then mathematics is the only religion which can prove it's a religion. Uh, I don't know who said that. That's a good I, one. I, 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 I think that's slightly twisting the word faith, but it is yeah, yeah. certainly if, if you're a, if you had your faith in Hilbert, uh, let's 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 talk in those terms. This right. is a massive. This is one of the most like mic drop, jaw, 
you know, dropping moments in math, in the whole history of mathematics. Like no mm. one saw this coming because if you don't go all the way, for example, if you don't go all the way to arithmetic, if you just say, all right, I'm just going to do geometry. All right. I'm just going to make triangles with right angles and, and mm-hmm. outer angles and sides mm-hmm. and stuff. It was, pro- it's been proven that that is complete and consistent. Right. So, so it's not that all, all of maths is just completely out the window. No, no, no. It's only past a certain point. Then suddenly everything goes out the window. Geometry, geometry is fine. So <laughs> just stop. Don't make any more triangles. You're good. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's such a strange result that, you know, even, so I, I wouldn't want to say, so, so some people have tried to say, we'll never get a final theory of physics just because of Gödel. I, I don't think that's true. I mean, it might be, but, who knows? Um, the, wor- the worry would be, I mean, I don't think anyone really worries that arithmetic is actually inconsistent. The problem is you just won't ever have a proof of it. It's these undecidable statements that are really hard ones. Yeah. And so th- there's a worry that if, if the true language of the universe were a language in which there were these undecidable statements, what if the universe actually had to try and do something and hit it asked, what should I do next? <laughs> what should and, I do next? Right, and its right. own mathematics says, I don't know. What do you right. want to <laughs> For <laughs> my that... next trick, watch me pull a number out of my hat. <laughs> yeah, the whole, the mathematics of the universe just goes, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, just give me two That's... seconds. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that was a bit of a detour. Yeah. Girdle, I find. So there are some fascinating stories about him as a person so he was a close friend of einstein actually was he um, a contemporary that he he knew did he know they dirac? were at print they were they were at princeton together and did he know dirac as well was he in that circle uh i th- einstein and dirac must have known each other dirac was british because dirac uh, was they all must have gotten together uh the, the 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 strangest man is a great story of dirac i don't know if you've ever read it it's a great biography of him um but dirac his thing was if you're going to do an equation, it's got to be beautiful that, that his, his final hmm. standard for a mathematical, for a theorem had to be beauty. And everybody's like, what are you talking about, Paul? What, what is that? But, but yet, like you said earlier, it just, he came to, it, it came to him and he's like, I find it very strange. I mean, people were talking in the biography, it details the strangeness of his personality, but just the, the genius of his being able to see things mathematically. I was reading a book uh, from an Oxford or a Cambridge astrophysicist. It was a short treatise on black holes. And I I came across an irony. It's kind of touching what you're saying. She was using, obviously, words and sentences to describe the superiority of mathematics over language. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. (laughs) And that's kind of getting what you're saying, you know, that at some point there's 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 a sort of a cliff you leap off of as you're saying, when you get really deep into the uh, trying to find those ultimate explanations is that hmm. it's, it's, it's like you're, you're, you're having to take at some point a leap that your axioms are true and they've led you to this point, but now you're sort of walking through a, a muddle that you can't really answer is that kind of like what Sean Carroll's doing with brute facting the universe. You just have to sort of at some point stop or, you know, continue the madness it seems. Yeah, I think for Sean, it, it, it's something a bit more like, all right, we, we can either stop here or we can go for a deeper explanation. Uh, what are the what are the candidate deeper explanations? And he looks at the field and says, well, none of those is better than just stopping right here. Stopping here isn't particularly, you know, satisfying, but it's 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 at least more satisfying than any of those options I see over there. God being one of them, but you know, there's ideas like um, maybe you know 
so Max Tegmark has this idea. Maybe math, math, maybe mathematical consistency and existence are just the same thing. So every mathematically consistent universe is actually real. Now, in, is in the in the discipline in that you talk about, are are your fellow theorists and uh, astrophysicists? No one's really positing that mathematics is causal, are they? It's just descriptive language, right? Are there people that are actually postulating that mathematics causes stuff? No, I don't think you'd say. So, I mean, if you're a theorist, so you know, um, you, you can I can write down equations galore, and m most of them won't describe anything. So th there can't be anything. You know, it, it's a massive leap for just to 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 say there's any connection between mathematics and, and, you know, reality itself. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I, I personally would say, you know, it describes reality. Mm. Um, I, I think that's what Sean Carroll would say, for example, as a human. Um, yeah. I, I, but there, there are these this sort of subspecies of, uh, they're called Platonists or Neoplatonists who think mm -hmm. that, that in some sense, mathematics, mathematical things exist in yeah. some broader sense of exist. That's Penrose's um, idea that he actually yeah. has an idea that it's not, it is sort of a, a neoplatonic where mathematics, if there were no human beings, mathematics still has this uh, realm of the ideal or some objective, some sort of objective realm where mathematics are real, uh, just not mm. in, a, in a tangible sense, but intellectually, uh, metaphysically, there is a reality to mathematics that are, lack of a better word, transcendent to, to our human species. Mm. And as you say, it's kind of weird that it's even applicable to our understanding of the universe. Like you say, a huge leap that math can explain uh, the hugeness of the cosmos, as you said at the beginning. You know, how is it that math, our mathematics, if, if we call it ours, can, can actually nicely uh, describe and replicate what's out there on that scale? Yeah, I'd put it slightly, I mean, possibly slightly differently. I, I think if, given that mathematics sort of contains all the logical consistent possibilities, I mean, whatever the universe was like, there'd be some level, some sort of mathematics that could describe it. Mm -hmm. The amazing thing is that the mathematics we need is not just a, a long, boring, but completely random list of facts about the universe. Like, you know, there's an electron over there and there's a proton yeah. over there, but actually we, we find these very higher level mathematical ideas, like, you know, differential calculus and, and manifolds and group theory and field theory. And, and, and there are these, um, those sorts of things we can apply to the universe um, I think one of the reasons why, so in, in the, in the middle ages, um, um, astronomy was called a middle science because it was thought, it was seen as halfway between physics and mathematics. Mm. And what put it in the middle was, um, there's, there's obviously mathematics where you do things with ideal sort of triangles and circles and all that yeah. sort of stuff. And then there's the physics of the real world and the physics is very, you know, it's, it's qualitative. You just can't try and describe what's going on. It's, it's, it's Aristotle's four elements of heat, water, uh, you know, air and, and fire. Um, but you can't apply mathematics down here because it's, it's far too messy. There's no perfect circles on earth. And mm. then there's this middle thing where astronomy, we can describe things pretty accurately as accurately as they could tell at the time using circles. Uh, but it was about the real world. And so it was this weird sort of middle ground of, of somehow I'm doing mathematics and it really applies to the real world.
Mm. And what we've discovered is actually um, we can make all of physics as as mathematical as that. We just have to, we, we've got to find the maths for it, but it's not just totally random lists of, of, of unconnected facts maths. It's differential equations. It's, you know, there really is a, an underlying simplicity. Mm, that's wonderful. I mean, it's, it goes all the way back to Galileo who famously said that uh, God created the math, the, the universe with the, the language of mathematics and butchering the quote, but, but basically anybody who's looked mm. at the universe for any length of time sees the mathematical resonance. Uh, Melissa Kane Travis in our book uh, talks about this, um, the idea that mathematics is a definitive kind of language for which physics doesn't have an ultimate explanation. It's just there and useful, but there's no, mathematics can't explain itself, can't explain its origins. It just seems to be there and useful and people take it for granted, but, but how to explain mathematics? How do your, how do your, secular counterparts do they ignore the origins of mathematics do they delve into it is this a metaphysical question that is kind of off the table or they just assume its efficacy and don't question its origin what's the attitude of mathematics in in the field today i'm not i i really should go start going and ask people about that because i i'm i'm interested i've just never got to <laughs> i just yeah it fascinates know, me i'm not i'm not making a judgment on anybody it just 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 be curious to really know how do people um, is it just something they don't think about, you know, uh, be lovely to hear you get into that maybe a little bit more when you can, if you, that would be great. Yeah. I, I think, um, yeah, I wonder what the, the attitudes are because, so for example, I mentioned David Albert before mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Al- Albert's got a view of the laws of nature, which is, is known as humanism. Um, so what it basically says is, um, the, the fundamental thing is all the physical events, and then we try to describe what's going on and mm. the sort of nicest, simplest, pithiest way of actually describing what's going on. That's the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that there are laws of nature in that sense is, is sort of true by definition, but the fact that there are short and pithy and elegant and mathematical laws of nature is something that's not in, in that it is a brute fact as much as the universe as a whole. It's almost a like uh, numerical proverbs, little maxims and numbers. Just, yeah. And, and so is the, is the idea, you bring up the word law, it's kind of in the same vein of what we're talking about. Uh, is that literally like a thing or is that just a metaphor that, that people are embracing because it's the easiest one to use? Or I know Paul Davies has written about how he doesn't like the word law or the idea of laws and some other physicists have talked about this as well. I think uh, uh, Martin Rees maybe has talked about this a little bit. The, the idea of the law is very monotheistic uh, and some people actually don't like that term. Uh, I think Davies advocates for some kind of software analogy or something like that. But, uh, right. but, but the law seems to be like a mathematical thing where it's like laws, there must be a lawgiver. Is this a, another thing that people sort of ignore, take for granted and just assume that they're there and don't think about the origins of these things or. Yeah. I think for most people, for most physicists, it, the, I think it does. Well, well, I think the idea of a law is, is kind of Newton's. So if for him, it was very literal, mm-hmm. you know, there, mm-hmm. there's a law giver. Um, and I think most people, um, once you write down then the law of gravity, um, well, you're really talking about the equation of gravity, and so it loses its theological overtones. Okay, but there is there is a sort of worry. So 
there's the alternative to what I just called the Humean, so after David Hume view, is called the governance view, that there are these mathematical equations that somehow direct the universe and, you know, tell, tell electrons which way to go. Um, and, and there are serious debates about, so I actually sort of witnessed one of them. There's two, I was at a conference over or my, my, my winter, your summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were two philosophers of science there and, and they had different views. One of them was saying, was, was a Humean saying that the, the stuff of the universe is fundamental and the laws is just how we talk about it. The other one had a view that actually the laws themselves are part are fundamental. They're part of the stuff of the universe in some mm. sense. He's, he's not a theist at all. And there was a, there was a debate that got a little bit heated about mm. whether this was a hangover whether the fact that the second guy thought that this was a plausible view, plausible view was sort of a hangover of theology, just, mm. just, just <laughs> waiting there, you know, you know, and, and the, the second guy denying this charge as being as, you know, slanderous. Oh and, um, oh no, the, the, I mean, there the were old colleagues who'd had this discussion okay. a whole lot of times. It wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> it was, it was vigorous, but it was not in any way acrimonious. It was, okay, it, was, yeah. it, was, it, was it was good to watch. Um, you know, these are, this is a very much an ongoing debate about, you know, do, do we think that there are laws out there just because of this hangover and we think yeah. God is moving stuff around in the universe? Well, I know um, Michael Ward in our Story of the Cosmos book, he was my uh, master's degree uh, thesis advisor. Uh-huh. And uh, he, he, you know, he had pointed out to me, you know, reminded me, of course, he, this is not an original thought with him, but, uh, you know, in the medieval cosmos, you had angelic beings pushing planets around and, you know, there was sort of this animistic view of the universe where there were attendant beings moving planets, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like the, the metaphors of laws and obedience are far more anthropomorphic than anything in the medieval world was because now you have, <laughs> you have particles and stars actually d- obeying uh, laws as if they understand the laws and they are moving in accordance with those laws. Uh, and so the metaphor and not that any physicist takes this seriously, but the, but the metaphor is far more anthropomorphic and animistic, if you will, than anything that the medievals could have conceived. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not, that's, that's a, that's a serious charge. Um, I, I do know there's a, there's a funny comment by Richard Feynman in one of his lectures. Uh-huh. So, in, in in the as you said the the in in the old days you needed in the medieval time you know, the angels needed to push the planets around in their orbit mm-hmm. um, and um, Feynman noted with Newton because you have a law of inertia things tend to move in a straight line Unless so you don't have wrong. to push you don't have to push the the planets from behind, there needs to be a push from the outside towards the center. So he, he just said, <laughs> all, all Newton did was change where the angels have to push from. They have to push That's from it. the outside, there you not, go. From, not from behind. <laughs> right, um, right. Being, being funny, of course. But, right, of course. Um, but, I do want to say, you know, uh, there's something that I, I hear a lot of sort of theists falling into a trap of, of either God explains it or the laws of nature explain it. Mm. Um, um, I, I, I particularly find this when, when, you know, I don't particularly have a dog in this race, but when we talk about the origin of life, say, so something mm-hmm. that's totally outside my area and people say of, you know, someone, someone comes up with an idea, you know, maybe RNA forms first and then DNA forms and then a cell forms and something like that. And they describe some theory like that as a naturalistic theory. 
Um, and it's not a naturalistic theory. It's just a natural theory. You know, mm. it could be true and theism could be true. So therefore it, it can't be a naturalistic theory if it could be true and naturalism could be false. Right? It. It's the, it's the istic there that's doing the naturalistic that's, 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 that's naturalists trying to sneak their philosophy in, but no, it's just a natural theory. It might be a theory put forward for completely bad reasons, reasons and yeah. with, and with no empirical support. And they might think it's replacing God and that's why they think it's good. All of that's behind the scenes. But even if it were true, it's not a naturalistic theory. It's a natural theory. Mm. Um, it's not, even if we're true, it wouldn't necessarily replace God. It just shows us how God, God pulled, you know, did that in the universe by, yeah. um, by, by that method. So there's a, as a, Mike Strauss is a physicist. I know who's also a Christian who one of his favorite illustrations he shared with me, and I've been using this a lot. So I've got to give him credit is, you know, in Psalm 104, it says um, that, you know, God, uh, God feeds the lions, mm-hmm. you know, he, he feeds the lions and, and brings them out, you know, and it's not saying that every time a lion gets hungry, God just miraculously creates an antelope. Mm. You know, it would be ridiculous <laughs> to say something like, we used to think that God feeds the lions, but now we know about antelopes. Yeah, right, right. We go to the you Serengeti know. and watch antelopes appear out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the theory of antelopes is not a naturalistic theory. Right. right? It's, not, it's not I'm trying to explain how lions get fed without God. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, if you can see it in that case, you know, it's hard. You know, we're, we're so used to origin of life being such more of a battleground than how lions get fed. But it's exactly the same point. It is. It's, that's a good way to put it, Luke. I think uh, looking at it in, in, in much more simpler terms than that makes the argument seem like, okay, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah. You say that in, said, I mean, there might be every good reason to, <laughs> to look at some of these natural <laughs> theories of the origin of life right. and be skeptical. I'll leave that sure. to other people. But. Right. You say, uh, I think it's either you or Grant in your um, Fortunate Universe book on uh, 265. It goes right along the lines of what we've been talking about. Um, you say life forms. You can tell me if this is you or Grant. Uh, life forms may be special to science because scientists are life forms. In science, what we observe depends not only on what is out there, but also on with what we are observing. What you see in the night sky depends an awful lot on what you're looking through. It depends on the atmosphere, the mirror, the detector, the software, and the sentient meat sitting in front of the computer screen. Um, I thought it was a wonderful short paragraph about how we are not only observers, but interpreters. And your quote reminded me of something Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said, the other Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis said in uh, The Magician's Nephew, and he says, uh, what you see depends a lot on where you're standing and what kind of person you are. How much do you see uh, personal anti-theistic or uh, bias in the discipline uh, in terms of when people, because I see a lot of metaphysics being spoken about in these debates, as you were just pointing out earlier. Uh, positions seem to be argued from a point of uh, maybe some behind-the-scenes antitheism uh, rather than maybe observational or, or data-driven science. Do you, do you find that to be accurate, or is that just a, a caricature of, of antitheism in science, or uh, do you think that's a really the, the, the anti-theistic metaphysics that may be driving a theory? Do you think that that's a, there's a reality to that charge? Yeah, I think I think there definitely is. I mean, when 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 you know the, when Loris Krauss writes a book, you know, the universe from nothing, um, it's the science is not driving any of that because 
science doesn't have an answer to the question of why there is something rather than nothing. Mm. It's pure. It's purely his naturalistic philosophy, and it's it's a naturalistic philosophy which is pretending to be science. It's not. It's not just being honest and saying, "Hey, I'm on philosophy. Let's try and deal with whether this is a good philosophy, a good worldview." Mm. That, at least, uh, you know, in that sense, Sean Carroll's book, The Big Picture, is infinitely better than 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 Krauss's book, just because it it knows what the difference is between what science can answer and what it can't. Mm. Um, and so, I definitely see that. And, you know, when when um, Hawking says something like, "You know, the universe exists because there is such a law as gravity." I mean, the science isn't driving him to that conclusion because, again, that it can't possibly drive him to that conclusion. It's, right. There's a gap between what the science can say and saying anything about why existence is there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, at that point, you've you've crossed over into metaphysics, and so uh, I think one of the problems here is that you know there's there's this, there's those you tell the history of of philosophy in the 20th century there's this movement called logical positivism yeah yeah um, yeah it's being recycled today on especially in social media uh the idea yeah that, but it, it oh yeah so the idea that uh, oh i'll say it and then you let me know if i'm, yeah, if I'm no, wrong no go ahead so basically the hope is that we can provide uh we can find a completely rock solid logical uh logically watertight method for doing science when when is it that an inference you know i've observed uh, a thousand white swans you know are all swans white when you know can i be completely certain that i can make an inference from the sort of inferences that science wants to make mm. and in particular there was behind that in the sort of philosophy that went along with that there's a what's called what i've heard referred to as the verification principle yes. which was yeah. mm-hmm. the meaning of a statement is equivalent to the what you would need to do empirically to work out whether it's true or false. That's right. It was an empirically based epistemology, kind of trying to be one size fits all epistemology. It wasn't that empiricism is bad. It was more like let's use empirical data for all kinds of knowledge claims. And yeah. the, the logical positivists fell apart because they couldn't agree upon how much empirical evidence would you require in order to move from inference to fact, as you just said? And that seems to be the, the why it fell apart. There was just no agreement on what counts as empirical evidence for a truth claim. Yeah. Also, you know, as I try and you know, catch up on these things, um, you know, I, I think for starters, the impulse behind logical positivism is there's, I mean, there's something sort of reasonable there that, you know, let's, yeah. Let's try and be specific about this. But at the point where you get to the verification principle, you, it, it shoots itself in the foot because it can't verify it itself. That's right. You cannot verify but, verificationism. But part of the problem, as I, as I think happened, was that, that school of thought as philosophy sort of is taken up by the physicists as a philosophy of science in sort of the 50s. But then they forget that it's philosophy and they hold on to it as just, you know, anything you can't test is meaningless um, as, as just, that's now just the, the methodology of science. That's not a one particular school of thought about the philosophy of science that this, this now just is science. Mm. And so because they're not doing philosophy, they totally miss the fact that in the, I'm, I'm seeing it fifties and sixties, 
that philosophy, that school, logical positivism just dies. It just, it, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, it, as a, as a school of philosophy, it sort of keels over and it does, know, it does itself, itself refutes and, and dies, but it's still sort of then it, it's not even alive as a philosophy amongst physicists. It's just there as a set of assumptions. And it I is. think we're still seeing that sort of thing today, especially with sort of old school, you know, and even not old school physicists, the sort of ones who think that science will explain everything that can possibly be explained. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, I, you don't I, have to do any philosophy. I see it repeated in social media quite often. A verifiable, mm-hmm. repeatable, testable. The atheist will object every time that everything, anything that needs to be true needs to be verifiable. Uh, and it's just sort of what I call zombie logical positivism, you know. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> just, yeah. the, just, just the, it wasn't, it won't die, <laughs> uh, but it's just kind of undead, just walking around. Um, you have it, on along this line, in terms of, uh, it, I just uh, had a wonderful chat with Carl Sagan's daughter on Monday. Uh, we oh, fascinating! On Twitter, and we talked about her dad's philosophy and uh, his science. His birthday is Saturday, and uh, we are. <laughs> Actually, if you're on Facebook, I know you are, you can watch the Atheist Christian Book Club. We are uh, discussing Pale Blue Dot on Saturday, uh, Saturday right. night. Um, but you mention on page 60, 266 in your book with uh, Geraint, uh, you say, keep in mind that significance, purpose, relevance, importance, specialness, these are not scientific terms. We haven't invented a significance-o-scope, no purpose-o-meter. There is no term in our equations for relevance. We haven't surveyed the universe with a telescope that measures importance. Science cannot state that we are insignificant. And the first several chapters of Pale Blue Dot really work hard. Sagan is working very hard to sort of demote us or to remind us that we have been demoted from the center of the cosmos. And then, you know, look at the, look at the Voyager image from, from uh, 1990. Look at the Pale Blue Dot Look how small we are. Look how insignificant or inconsequential we are. Uh, do you see that uh, being, I mean, obviously in your book here, you and Grant mentioned this or you mentioned this. Do you see that push toward insignificance in cosmology and in, in, in your discipline? I find a lot of that, the sort of thing that uh, Sagan said, that, you know, modern science just shows that we're insignificant. Mm. I find that just assumed by a whole bunch of people an awful lot. It just keeps popping yes, up. From it does. I see it all the time myself. Yeah. And it, so it's just assumed, never talked about. And we just, we just move forward with that, like a static universe, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. It's, it's, it, well, it is talked about, but it's never challenged. Okay. Um, you know, people are happy to, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, happy to sort of tell us in great detail how small we are and mm. then just go from smallness to insignificance as if that wasn't a, a complete change of category. <laughs> it really um, is. It really is. How did you get yeah. from A to A to B? I mean, equali is small, but nobody's going to call that insignificant, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I I I was writing a there's a book by a colleague of mine, uh, Brian Gainsler, which is a very good book called uh, Extreme Cosmos. It's just about all the the hottest and densest and and yeah. most crazy stuff out there. It's quite a good book. But he sort of repeats this thing at the end. Like every review of the book, basically saying, you know, it's very good. Here's the good bits, but just saying, you know, look, you know. My house, in my house, the, the, my children don't contribute anything to its structural integrity, um, but that doesn't mean they're insignificant, right? Mm-hmm. If there's a fire in the house, I'm not going back for the load-bearing beams. I'm going back <laughs> for my kids. That's right. 
Um, so there's just no, you know, uh, another example is you hear about when you're a, you know, I was a physics undergrad and loves cosmology and started reading all these books and read Martin Rees's books and then yeah. uh, got, got, got the scholarship to do a PhD at Cambridge where he was the head, uh, you know, he, he was professor there and uh, you sort of, you know, the excitement about, you know, being able to meet Martin Rees and have a chat with him about stuff. And then he walks into the room and, and the thing you might not know about Martin Rees is he's, he's really short. <laughs> he's, <laughs> okay. He's, he's, you know, there's, there's, there's something you only know if you've met the guy and, and said hello. <laughs> Um, uh, that does not make me more significant than Martin Rees. The right. fact that I've got a, a serious right. height and weight advantage over the guy. Yeah, yeah. This is not how we measure his significance. <laughs> right. Yeah. What 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 point? What level does significance start? Or yeah. uh, or our cosmography? You know, where in the universe are we? I you know it's a joke, but I I think of our in terms of whenever I hear our you know we've been demoted from the center of the cosmos. I'm like, well, how do you know? How do you know exactly where we are? You know, even if I live in the, the, the continental center of Australia or the continental center of the United States, <laughs> North America, and you move me off center, that, does that reduce my significance because I'm not in the center of the landmass? Uh, yeah. You know, that's the, 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 there's no correlation to it. It's a non sequitur to be able to go from location or size to, to significance. It just, you, you can't make that leap. I should say there's a, there's a good book recently, I think it was called Unbelievable by Mike Keyes. Okay. who's a historian who just looked at, I mean, um, we've been talking about the link between significance and size, but historically there's this story that you know, we, we put ourselves in the middle of the universe because we thought we were really special. And then uh, uh, Copernicus came and kicked us out of the middle and that was a real <laughs> kick in the teeth for everyone. And historically yeah. that is all nonsense, all just, uh, just complete garbage. So he, it is, he traces... The, both the history of that myth and then just the, the, so there's a quote from Galileo saying that in, in moving the earth away from the center, uh, he is moving it away from like the, in, in the old system, in, in Aristotle system, the earth's at the center because the earth, it's not the center, it's the bottom. It's where all the crud collects. Right. Right. Under so the moon was it, not... Yeah. He Under calls the... it the, the sump where the, uh, the universe's filth and ephemera collects. Right. And that he right. was going to give us a promotion out of that. It was a step up, not a step down. That's right. Any life under the moon in the medieval system was a mess. I mean, it was just. Yeah, uh, that's where, where change happens and change mm -hmm. is imperfection. In, right. In and it wasn't until, uh, I think it was Tycho Brahe's uh, 1572 supernova that, that undid the immutability of the spheres above the moon. That How did this star change? How could this possibly be? Um, yeah, but, in, in particular, you you had to believe that comets were below the moon. Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. they turned up every now and then. But, right, uh, right. They, they um, better not be out there in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So we've had a fascinating uh, romp through uh, theoretical cosmology uh, in the last hundred years. I think we covered it pretty well, or you did. Thank you. Uh, I want to give you some time to talk about your new book with Geraint coming out in February, I believe. What are you guys talking about? Yes, it about? is. So this this started because um, we get emails from people and and they say, look, uh, they 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 all have a similar sort of script and they say, I've got this new revolutionary idea about cosmology and it's going to be the next you know the next Copernican revolution and it's going to completely overturn everything. But no one's listening to me. Can you please read my manuscript and, and tell me how I can become as famous as I want to be or yeah, something like that. Okay. Uh, or you get, you get people 
and the giveaway is you've given a public talk and then you open it up for questions, which is always a minefield from the audience. And someone goes, this is, this is, this is more of a comment than a question. And then, you know, yeah, I want to pontificate for five minutes in front of a physicist. Yeah. What we found was we both got these emails and lots of cosmologists do. And um, actually got a friend who's an, who's an archeologist and he gets a whole bunch of weird ones as well. But that's another story entirely. Um, and we end up sending back a similar sort of email to all of them. And it's, it's basically, look, um, you've, you've, you've got two things you need to do here. First of all, you need to show that your idea, not just can hand wavingly qualitatively sort of seem to explain the way the universe is, but our measurements of the universe are numbers. And so your theory needs to produce numbers. And so you've got to, you've got to put it down in mathematical form. Otherwise, mm-hmm you're not really making predictions. And the other thing is, that's the first thing. The second thing is there's a whole lot of different observations that we've made about the universe and you need to be able to explain all of them, not just your one favorite bit. Mm. And so this, the, our book is called the cosmic revolutionaries handbook or, you know, in brackets, 10 ways, you know, how to beat the big bang. <laughs> and basically it's a, it's a user's guide. If you've got your idea, um, about how to overthrow the big bang theory here's we'll just lay out uh, sort of the rules of the game like i said you've got to do it mathematically Uh and um you know that there's ways to properly engage the scientific community and there's ways that which just don't work so don't bother trying that you know just sending (laughs) a a massive long you know unedited unformatted email to someone it's never going to work Please don't do that. And then, and then we, we just try to lay out as the, the, the data of cosmology as raw as we can. Um, as, as much as, a, all right, if you can explain this, then give yourself a tick. Uh, here's, here's what it looks like when the Big Bang explains it. And this is why we think the Big Bang works, the theory. So, for example, um, the Big Bang explaining why there is a cosmic microwave background. Here's the assumptions we make. Mm. Here's why it explains the data. Here's, here's you know, in particular... The, the light we see in the universe looks very, very much like the light we would expect to see from something which is at exactly 2.7 Kelvin you know, degrees above absolute mm. zero. You better be able to explain that. And so it, it's really just a look, if you want to overthrow the, the quote at the start of the book, which is one of my absolute favorites. Okay. It's from a British TV show called Yes, Prime Minister, uh, which is it's, it's, it's in the tradition of, you know, Veep. Uh-huh. If, if you know that show. So it was that, but in the eighties and nineties, okay. it it, it's such a brilliant show, even if you're not British. <laughs> but there's a quote, which where, where one of the, the civil servants says, um, the, 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 the legend that is Sir Humphrey says, um, of course you must get behind someone before you can stab them in the back. <laughs> um, and so that the, the thing is like, learn what the big bang model is, learn what okay. the, observations are and then you're in a position to say you know what here's why my my theory not just it sounds nice and i think i've seen a problem with the big bang but but on on the real battlefield of the data you can say bang you know i can nail this data and that data and this data i can explain all this better yes and and real predictions of of numbers rather than just hand wavy oh i can totally explain that yes yes so So that's what the book's about that sounds fantastic and i'm sure it's got the your uh you guys did a great job in a fortunate universe. There's, there's some good banter and some fun wit that goes on in the book there. And I, I hope to see that continued in, in your new book. It's going to be cool. I'm going to get it. Um, which brings me to my sort of my, 
my thing, and this is this is where me as a non-specialist who is a pseudo, I say pseudo, but me who is an apologist, a Christian apologist, what would be some solid advice that you could give to budding young Christian apologists or even people who like apologetics who always come into, at some point, if you do apologetics, you're always coming into the cosmological arguments of various kinds, fine-tuning and why is there something rather than nothing, these kinds of things. And I've seen it and I've done it where I'm making these broad general statements about the universe, cosmology. Um, Maybe they're not the wisest thing to say, or maybe we say it in error. What would be, from the advice of a professional astrophysicist, cosmologist, what would you tell Christian apologists who want to argue for God's existence or the evidence for God through cosmological argumentation? What do you see and what would you advise people who talk about this, who don't, who aren't in the science? Yeah, it is kind of a hard one. Um, I, I think the 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 parallel for me would be, you know, I I, I do read a lot of stuff about you know historical Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm not a historian. I don't read Greek. You know, I have no, you know, and so I, you know, I'm I'm in the same scenario there as well, uh, uh, but relative to that other field. Mm. And so I think I think um, there's no there's no substitute for a just good block of reading, you know, just, just jump in. If, if, if you like a particular, you know, argument, if you think it sounds good, just, just get some people who know the field pretty well to recommend some of the best books and just jump in um, with a couple of good books. Um, uh, But I think that there's ways you can set things out, which are, um, which are kind of helpful. And I, I think that there's things you can do, even if you're not an expert, which, which I help, which which I think are helpful. So, for example, um, it it helps if you can get hostile witnesses. Um, so, okay. for example, he, um, there's a there's a way of setting out. So, for example, in the in historical Jesus, there's just some minimal facts way of mm-hmm. setting out some mm-hmm. facts about the life of Jesus. Now, whether that's the best approach, you know, discuss that. But the idea behind it is let's pick things which even which which basically everyone agrees on. Secular scholars agree on. Um, so there, there is universal, you know, acknowledgement that Jesus died on the cross at the hands of the Romans. Right? That is something, if you don't think that happened in the life of Jesus, you know, you're either one of the extremely small fraction of, of, of people who are Jesus mythicists or possibly you're a Muslim mm-hmm. uh, and you think that because, because Muhammad said it. But, but other than those two groups, basically everyone believes that happens on 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 rock solid historical grounds and so you might not know every little detail about you know maybe i can't read the new testament in greek but you can still say look that much is rock solid you can say you can you can you can remember quotes you know bart ehrman and gerd ludeman saying things like this is the most secure fact of ancient history that's that's useful Mm -hmm. um so there are things you can do if you know the you know, there there are usually good sort of popular level books on these things. Obviously, I think mine on the fine tuning argument is is clearly the best one. Um, <laughs> it's uh, well, uh, there are you know the books that you can you can get you up to speed on these pretty well. And then if you just say, look, if you're in a position where you can say, look, this is something where one of the things I like about our book is that I'm a Christian and Geraint's an atheist, and you can say, look, here's a book 
written by a Christian and an atheist, and they both agree on this. And mm-hmm. most of the, you know, the people who actually study this field yes. agree on at least this basic fact. And then you've got to be a bit precise about that, what that is. In particular, the word fine tuning can be misinterpreted, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, small changes to the fundamental constant, the way the universe is set up would, would make a universe, which is basically a disaster for life. That much is pretty well decided. And then there's a debate about what all that means. Mm. So I think um, my advice there would be um, read the right sort of people, find, find someone who actually knows the field. You know, I, you know, if I, I've, you know, know, know a couple of people who are historians and know the history quite well. So if I want to chase a bit deeper into that area, I'm going to go ask them for what book I should read mm-hmm. on a particular thing. Uh, and then, you know, do a bit of reading. Um, uh, in particular, I've got, I, I think there's ways of setting out the fine tuning argument, which are actually even simpler than the way that I set it out in the book. I've got a paper coming out about this soon in Ergo, you know, it's in a philosophy journal, so it's a little bit technical, but actually the way it sets out the argument itself and uh, avoid some, uh, objections that tend to pop up. Okay. And so if you, you know, if you can follow a couple of books and a couple of papers, you know, uh, I think you're in reasonable shape. Um, if you, if you come up against someone who's actually, uh, you know, not just a physicist who doesn't know the field because you, you know, you probably do know something that they don't if they haven't read these papers. But, you know, if you came up against someone who, you know, if if you sit down on a plane and start chatting about this and the person next to you happens to be Sean Carroll, you're out of luck you know, you know, you're done. Good, good luck but you know see what see what you can, you can do have a chat he's a nice guy um but for most people you know you can at least give them the reassurance that look you know this is not something that is just something that theists made up so it's a good basically in general if you're going to argue for it formally read up on it and do your homework i mean that's that's just basic basic stuff yeah, there's a good book called, um, which I'm sure you've read, Tactics by Greg Kukul. Yes, Kukul. That's a, I um, have to actually, it's on my list, but I, I, I hear good things about uh, it. So, let, uh, you know, still read it. But the short story of that book is, and, and go and read it because it's, it's good. So don't just take my summary of it. Mm. But basically, there's always three things you can say. There's always three things you've got in your back pocket for any conversation. And one of them is the question, what do you mean by that? not used as any sort of tactic, but actually sometimes you really have to do like, what are you talking press, press about? People. Yeah. 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 Um, what, and the second question is, why do you think that? And, you know, and in particular, you're looking for not just um, the history of what, how they came to learn that, but what reasons do you have for that particular belief? Mm-hmm. And the reason why that's, I mean, that's important because maybe they've never thought of that or maybe they're in a very different, you know, if you're thinking scientifically and they're thinking sort of more postmodern-y, then you need to have that conversation yeah, rather exactly. than what you, whatever you're talking about. And the third one is you always have in your back pocket the, that's a really good question. I don't know. Do you mind if we, I get back to you and we, we have a chat about it at some later time? And yeah. if you get a person who's genuinely seeking, then Do that. they can't be, you know, if, they've, if, they, if they want to say, you know, I've been thinking about these questions for ages, they can't be bothered if it takes you a week to get back to them like if they really want the answer then mm-hmm. then it gives you time to go and chat to people so i think always having those three things in your back pocket of let's let's go deeper into what you think let's really think harder about you know why we think what we think and you know, you know maybe we maybe i don't know the answer and we we have to go and have a closer look at some stuff mm. well that's good i mean that's all good advice it really is there's it's not just uh 
I mean, I know I, my knowledge of cosmology and astronomy is, is, is very lay oriented, but I just happen to fall into a, a group of wonderful scholars and people such as yourself that have helped me and developed my thinking. Uh, so thank you for being a part of the story of the cosmos. And uh, I don't know if it's on uh, uh, your Australian uh, Amazon, but uh, story is the cheapest it's been since it's been out. It's like $10 on American Amazon right now. Ah, cool. Actually, so, let me. Why don't we just double check that? <laughs> uh, yeah, because, <laughs> because that is worth. That's uh, that's great Christmas shopping right there. It's ten. That bucks. is that is wonderful, and I can heartily recommend that book for Christmas because my next book doesn't come out before Christmas. Yeah, so this would be uh, this would so be a good fine. a good introduction to Luke's writing is uh, in the chapter of the story of the cosmos that he writes with Alan Hainline, and then if that's interesting to you, you can read a find a fortunate universe that he writes with Geraint Lewis, which is witty and informative. And uh, as Luke said, a Christian and an atheist, here's what they agree on. Um, and basically it, it's, it's wonderful reading. And I think it should be required reading if you're going to get into the fine tuning arguments. Um, oh, but uh, I don't know if the book, if story of the cosmos is cheap on your Amazon or not. It's, it's, it's 15 Australian dollars on Kindle. So that, that seems pretty good to me. Okay. Um, Although so that it, that printed that printed copy is really it's really nicely printed. Oh, it's I, I, I quite love my version. I quite like it. Oh, it's it is a hands. It's far more handsome than I mean. I knew Harvest House was going to do a good job on it, but they really went all out with the artwork. It really yeah, really really glossy, beautiful pieces. It, it's yeah. one. Of, it's like an astronomy field guide. Uh, <laughs> it's the only my only regret about the book is that we didn't have a chapter on backyard astronomy, which is I really wanted one, but they didn't think it was a good idea that I wrote three chapters in the book. And I didn't think that was a good idea either because I'm the least qualified of everybody. <laughs> but uh, that was the only thing that I thought it was missing was just basic backyard eyeball astronomy because, well, it would be different in, in your part of the country than it would be in mine uh, in terms of stars and constellations because I've never seen the southern hemisphere sky. I would love to. Um, yeah, I've, I've been giving talks recently on just what's in the, the night sky tonight and people always love it. Uh, even just the littlest things like, you know, yeah. They, you know, that's Beetlejuice and that's, you know, Rigel and that's, yeah. Can you see how, can you see, do you see Orion in your skies? I'm Yes, although it's upside down, of course. Okay, and it's low on the horizon, I would imagine, right? Because yeah, low, low in the horizon on in a certain part of the year, which I yeah. probably should know off the top of my head, but don't. <laughs> but uh, Sarah I Southlander, I, I joke with Sarah, who's in our book, she's a, she's a black hole expert and I said, Sarah jokes she's self-deprecating about it. She's like, she doesn't know, she doesn't know constellations or stars. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I didn't. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I, I came out of physics, a theory, I'm a theorist. Uh -huh. And so I didn't really either. So actually giving these talks involves a frankly embarrassing amount of Googling. For me. <laughs> that's funny. That's really funny. But I, I, that's one of my loves. I go out when it's clear and I'll take my little uh, hand app and I'll go uh, yeah, yeah, learn yeah. star constellations and star names and try to learn names by sight. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It brings me a lot of peace and, and joy to be able to just do eyeball astronomy. It's great. Well, sir, thank you so much for taking your invaluable time to chat with me today. And uh, I appreciate it. Anything that you'd like to wrap up in terms of uh, how you as a believer, how this field of work edifies you or how you see the glory of God and what you do or any final thoughts you'd like to add before we part ways for the time. I think you, you just about ended it uh, there. So I was at a, I was at a conference which was called uh, uh, consider the heavens. Mm. And um, 
people think about it in theory, but, you know, go and look at the stars, <laughs> like really go and look at it. I mean, get away from whatever city you may in be in or, and get, get out to a proper dark spot and give yourself, give your eyes the time to, to settle, you know, for about 15 minutes to just get properly used to the darkness and, mm-hmm. and, and take a picnic rug and lie down. Really like it is, I'm an astronomer. When I tell that to people, they a lot of people just have to tell me about this experience they had with the night sky. It is one of, it, it should be a required thing that everyone must do at some point in their life. But sadly, we don't do enough because we all live in cities. That's right. But you, don't just look at these the wonderful pictures in uh, that come out of the Hubble Space Telescope and all that sort of stuff. You, you go and look at the stars. Right. Michael talks about that in the chapter in our book. He talks about how we've been very satisfied with substituting images of the universe for the actual encounter with the universe with our own two eyes. Um, yeah. And it's absolutely it, uh, essential that we get back to, to doing that. I think it is. I, th- I think it, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the reasons why it's easy to kind of ignore, you know, but, you know, we were talking before about, you know, Sagan and, and, and DeGrasse Tyson saying that, you know, the universe is immense. And so we're just tiny and insignificant, but, Actually, if you go and look at the universe, people have, they don't have, they have, they have feelings of smallness, but not of insignificance. Yeah. It's it, almost it, it like, has a fascinating effect on people. It does. It's almost, I was telling this, talking to a friend of mine about this uh, just the other night. It seems like between, you know, the reflection that Carl Sagan has of the pale blue dot, and it's almost psalmic, like what David reflects on in Psalm 8, where you look at the universe. Mm. And immediately what seems to come to mind is the question of who I am in the midst of all of that. Mm. And, you know, David asks, um, you know, when I look at the, the moon and the stars, the works of thy fingers, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And uh, even though Carl Sagan took a secular route, he's still contemplating our existence in the universe. And, it seems like there's an axiomatic default that every time you contemplate the universe, you are filled with this sense of wonder and you begin to question in a good way. Why am I here? What am I doing? What, but there's this deeper, meaningful back and forth questioning, you know, like the Hamlet quote, I will question you. And what is this? You know, this, the, the universe seems to evoke the, the natural curiosity within ourselves. It's pointing to the glory of God. It seems to make us think of, I mean, we, we can't escape God or laws or, 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 or meaning or purpose. These questions always come up every time you're talking about cosmology or astronomy. These questions of purpose and meaning and, and origin and man in its place always seem to, to, to be on the peripheral, if not in the central aspects of all the, of all the writings that you, you read today. Um, I think it's beautiful, and I think that's kind of the way God made it. But I, I love, I just want to mention really quickly, your blog. Are you still actively blogging at Letters to Nature? Uh, less often than I used to, but occasionally I'll I'll jump on there. So yeah, letters to nature at wordpress.com. Can you uh, briefly, what, what are some topics that you cover? Because I think that's a great resource for people that might not even be familiar with your writings. And what, 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 what do you find uh, to be most widely read there? What do people like? What, what's on there? What, what can you uh, resource there? So actually, if you look, if you click on, uh, I think if you go there, there's a, there's a page there I think I've set up, uh, which has some of my like favorite ones. So if you just click my name at the top, on the, the bar uh, and then look down, it'll say uh, some of my favorite posts can be found here just rather than trying to read 
all, all of them. But there's an awful lot of stuff on fine tuning. It's kind of how I got into it in the first place, mm. uh, that there was a whole lot of stuff which was written, which was terrible. So I just started critiquing that. Okay. But um, there, there's a whole bunch of other interesting stuff. Um, it, it, it's a way of getting thoughts out of my head. It's been quite therapeutic for me. I don't really write great. for anyone else. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, so a couple of posts that were, so there's a post called Why Science Cannot Explain Why Anything at All Exists. Uh, which we sort of covered here today, but that one gets a lot of reading from from a whole bunch of people. I've written a, a, written some posts on what you should read if you want to get into these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, a really interesting set where it was just all right. Uh, I'm just going to work out how far you can hit a you know a baseball or a cricket ball in with the, with wind resistance, and actually did the calculations <laughs> for for that. And then wow. uh, what one of the things I worked out was what difference it makes the altitude that the pitch is at. Mm. And that actually got picked up by a couple of cricket <laughs> commentators, like, oh, wow. which I was very happy about. Not That's relevant like... to my science at all, but yeah. <laughs> and uh, you and Geraint do a series of videos. Are you guys still doing some uh, video talks or little podcast video talks? Yep. Where can that be? Just post. So, so we have a a YouTube channel called Alas Lewis and Barnes. Uh, which people can find uh, where we just spend about 15, 20 minutes just answering questions that we get from public talks and all that sort of thing. So if you go on YouTube and look for Alas, Lewis and Barnes. So I posted one yesterday where we just have a chat about what happens if you fall into a black hole, Mm. um, which is, you know, it's not good news, but it's awfully fun (laughs) for a physicist. Um, Yeah. So we, we just, you know, roughly every two weeks, we just, we post those up there and we get, we get some good feedback about those. They're a lot of fun. That's great. And, and so just, just to clarify, statistically, I know Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about death by black hole all the time, but statistically speaking, according to the Center for Disease Control, as far as I know, no one's ever died <laughs> from a black hole. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure, I tried to look, in the, in the whole, whole of history, I think only three people have died because of the vacuum of space. There were some Russian cosmonauts who their, their, their ship malfunctioned. Oh, uh, I think that's right. So, so I mean, there's been the Challenger disaster, but that, I mean that the ship blew up. It would right. kill them. You know, they, they they didn't asphyxiate in the vacuum of space. They mm. got burned alive, mm. unfortunately. They. Uh, but so 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 yeah. DeGrasse Tyson loves to talk about our spaces. Is it's all killer and it's all yeah, coming to get us. Yeah, eat us for lunch. Right. It's very unpleasant. Yeah, but but like yeah, as you get, he he. I assume he's quite happy to walk around outside. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> it really isn't. But you read, it's funny to see in the literature, you, even even just a cursory sampling of the of the historical development of our universe, some of the the violence and the the metaphors and the similes that people use to describe the monstrosity, the 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 death, the monstrosity, the collisions, the explosions. It's it's just it's just like a Mad Max movie. It's just terrible. <laughs> Nobody wants to live there. Um, but yet, as you say, it's like, oh, isn't the universe wonderful? And I love to go outside and look at the sunshine and the stars and everything is beautiful. So they want to have their chaotic cake and yet eat the wonders of the, the finely tuned biosphere in which we live as well. So it's not all bad. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're fine. We're, we're all right. <laughs> we're not going to get swallowed by a black hole that's 26,000 light years away from us right now. We're, we're yeah. okay. <laughs> We're observing from a distance. Uh, and, uh, and that's fine. And that's really cool. Yeah, people complain about the emptiness of space, but that's what's keeping all the other stuff at a distance. Like, that's what you, right. 
That's Do you want that stuff to be next to us? <laughs> <laughs> and and I find, you know, one of the objections, I'm sure you hear this a lot. I hear it a lot. One of the, the objections is, well, if God created the universe uh, or, or if, if the fine-tuning, if, if, if the universe was fine-tuned for life, why are we it? I'm like, well, the, the fine-tuning argument doesn't deal with the quantity of life in the universe. It just says that the universe is, I think that's the... Uh, the weak anthropic, right? It just permits life. That's correct. Is that is that that's the bare bones? Uh, it yeah. It doesn't deal in quantities. It doesn't say the universe must have billions of other human beings. It just says that this universe allows for carbon-based life in this situation. Yeah, it's really just. I mean, there's such a difference between uh, the bits of the, the sort of universes where life is possible from the ones where it isn't possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the fact that within the ones where it's possible, you can then have a finer distinction of more or less life. That's a, such a tiny region of possibility space that, you know, that's not the major, that's not the headline story here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But thank you so much, Luke, for taking uh, time to chat. It was a wonderful chat. I wanted to kind of uh, just let it develop organically. And I really had an enjoyable time talking to you and hearing you explain the history of cosmology of the last hundred years. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thanks for that. That was good. Yeah. A good chat. Yes, sir. 